How I love your word, how it lights my path, how it guides my way. We are nearly at the end of our journey through Acts. We'll have one more week next week. So we're in Acts chapter 28. And we shall start reading at verse 11 down to 22. And you can listen or read along with me. Acts 28 verse 11. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brothers and sisters, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for me being put to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. They said to him, we have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. And we shall pause there. I'll pray for David. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for David. Lord, thank you for his preparation this morning. We pray you would fill him now with your Holy Spirit and may we hear the words you've got for us through him. In Jesus' name. Amen. I first became a Christian in my first term at university, a committed Christian then, and um, another student decided me that once I'd been committed, he wasn't going to let me go back. And he came to me and he said, I think you should start reading the Bible every day. I was not used to that, so uh, I know it'll seem horrific to you that... but. Uh, so um, he said, I would suggest there's a scripture union and they have a thing called daily notes. Um, and I suggest you take those and you start reading and they, they ask you three questions every day on the passage you've read. And after I'd been doing this for two or three weeks, I said to my student friend, this is very simplistic. And um, just shows how arrogant I was, wasn't it? 
But anyway, um, he said, well, there is another thing that the Scripture Union also published called Bible Study Notes. And um, I suggest you move on to those. So I did. And the Bible Study Notes, they said, would go through the Bible in seven years. And I was gradually reading the Bible, following these passages, doing them, the Bible Study Notes. And I suddenly found I was reading bits I'd read before. Now, naive man that I am, I decided to write to Scripture Union. And I, said to, I wrote to them and I said, um, you told me I would read the Bible in seven years, but I'm already finding bits in it that I've already read before. And they wrote a very kind letter back to me and they said, yes, you will read the Bible in seven years, but in that seven years, you'll read the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice. So you are right, you are reading what you have read before. Um, just shows how ignorant I was. But since that time, I've, I guess for the last you know, 50 years, I've been reading the Bible and I've been quite often, in many years I've read the whole Bible in a year, that sort of um, idea. And uh, uh, Selwyn Hughes writes a, writes a book called Reading the Bible Chronologically. And, and that means you, you read the Bible at the sort of date in history that it was written. Um, and uh, if you are reading a prophet, you'll be reading at the same time if he is complaining about, or not complaining, if he's prophesying against kings or things like that, you would find that those two things would be linked together. And so you'd be reading about uh, in Kings or in uh, Chronicles, something like that. And at the same time, you'll be reading about what the, one of the prophets said about this king or his Chronicles. And I found that very helpful. And I, I went through it once where it does the Bible in a year. And a few years later, I decided to do it again. And I, I actually found that was a help to me to, to slot these things together. Now, my current reading of the Bible is I read four chapters a day. Um, I read three chapters from the Old Testament and one chapter from the New Testament. And I guess that will take me through the Bible in about 15 months. And yesterday, while I was thinking about today, I was reading my Old Testament was three chapters from Micah. And um, my New Testament reading, the one chapter, was from the first epistle of Peter, chapter 4, and I came across this verse. It says, um, whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Some translations say who speaks the very oracles of God. Now you might think that's great. I thought, whoa, come on, no pressure, Peter. <laughs> so, but what I do know it's over the years that I've been with Ichthus, we've had some of the best preachers and still do have some of the very best preachers you'll ever hear. And so, if you keep coming after this week, you will hear, <laughs> I promise you, the very words of God. But perhaps not today. <laughs> We're on this uh, last lap of the ship. Um, and it's another ship from um, Alexandria in Egypt. Egypt provided a lot of the ships that carried grain. The ship that Paul was on that got beaten to bits by the, the, the storm and, and uh, crashed in Malta um, also came from Alexandria. Um, but the winter is over now. And I, I told you before that there's a dangerous period and an impossible period to sail. 
But that, once the spring comes, the winter is over, then they can sail. And so they decide they're going to sail from Malta um, and they're going to sail on the Mediterranean to go to Italy. The figurehead on the boat was called the Twin Brothers. That was in the text read. These were Castor and Pollux in Roman and Greek mythology. Um, in both the Roman and the Greek mythology, they were identical twins. They had the same mother, but they had different fathers. Pollux was supposed to be the son of the god Zeus or Jupiter, according to whether it was Roman or, or Greek. And um, Castor's father was Tyndareus. And Castor and Pollux were held to be the, not the patron saint, but the sort of like the patron of seafarers. He took care of seafarers. He gave them good winds, and it's who they would cry out to. Um, Castor and Pollux are also two stars in the Gemini uh, constellation, which you can see, but, but these were just um, like Roman gods, and they would have had um, bronze or something like that, statues on the boat that said that this was a, a Castor and Pollux boat. And one of the interesting things is that, well, it interests me anyway, um, when you have lightning and thunderstorms, um, sometimes they charge the earth with, with a charge, and there's a, a charge um, between the earth and the clouds above. And what happens exactly in the, the fluorescent lights that you've got in your kitchen, right? Uh, when you put the charge across, you get um, a yellowish light, don't you? But they used to get naturally occurring when the charge was there, which was from the thunderstorm, a blue light that would go up at the mast. And they called that um, St. Elmo's Fire. And they said, the mariners or the sailors used to say, that shows that Castor and Pollux are with them. That light is Castor and Pollux's light guarding us and keeping us safe. So you can see what you can believe if you don't know anything, can't you? <laughs> they sail to Syracuse, which is the principal city of Sicily, and they stay there for three days, and then they sail on to Regium in Italy. Um, if you think of Italy as we were taught in school, geography, Italy is a, a boot, isn't it, that kicks, and Sicily is the ball, and the boot kicks um, uh, the ball into the sea, right? Well, the very toe of the boot, that's where um, Regium was. So they've gone to Syracuse in Sicily, then they move to the very toe of that boot, and then they go up a little further up the course to a, a port called Putoli, which was a major part port and it's located near Naples now and it was one of the two largest ports in Italy at the time and it was the equivalent I guess of Liverpool in this country you know where Liverpool used to be a major port for so much traffic all around the world um, it was, and it's probably Liverpool may have been our major port but Putoli was like that for for Italy in those times how do you think Paul and Luke and Aristarchus were feeling when they docked at Puteoli. The dangerous part of the journey was now over. All the sea crossing where you could have storms and this sort of thing. All they'd got to do was travel 150 miles by road up to Rome. The, 
the future was becoming the present. What was ahead of Paul was much closer. He was facing coming to the mightiest city on earth, the most powerful authority, the heart of the Roman Empire, the most eminent scholars, lawyers, military might who had been sometime in the future. You know, this was something in the future. As you're going along, sometime in the future I'm going to be in Rome, but it's now becoming imminent. I wonder how you would have felt in that. I was trying to think of an example. Uh, I wonder if perhaps you've ever had a major operation, right? And the doctor has told you perhaps, um, I've, I've taken the x-rays and whatever I've taken, and you do need a major operation, and I'll put you on the list, but it may take a year or so before you go in for the operation. And when, when he tells you that, you're obviously um, upset a bit about it, but it is, it's a year ahead. And then gradually, as the time comes down, more and more questions, as you, as, you know, as that 12 months goes to nine months, to goes to six months and three months, and you start thinking, what will I do when I've finished? And all the what-if questions, if the operation doesn't go very well, and if I'm, let's say, crippled, or if I'm this and I'm that, who's going to look up to the family? Who's going to be able to do it? The whole pressure starts to come. And, and you've moved from the, the distant future, unpleasant though that distant future may be, to the unpleasant reality of not what actually will necessarily happen, but what might happen. And I think that Paul would have been facing that. When he was, you know, in um, Caesarea, and, and he had the sort of disputes, and they couldn't find him guilty, or they didn't find him guilty, but, but he'd appealed to Caesar, that going to Rome was a long time, time in the past. But now he had to be... Um, facing what was going to be the end of 150 miles. He was facing Caesar's court where he might feel he'd be standing alone, except that the Christian is never alone. He has the consciousness of the unseen cloud of witnesses around him or her and about him. He has the consciousness of belonging to a worldwide fellowship, he has the consciousness that wherever he goes, he goes there with God. And he has the certainty that the risen Lord will be with him. But they have to, whoever it is, whether it's you or Paul who's facing these situations, you have to lay hold of these by faith because the attacks from Satan will come to make you feel discouraged. It's very easy to think of Paul as this man of huge, enormous courage, which he was. But everyone, when they get close to what could be great danger, there'll be fears attacking you. And you may have to stand and hold in faith. I think they will have been feeling, um, yeah, I don't say upset, but bothered about the thoughts of what might happen and what might be a little bit in the future. And look how the Lord gives him encouragement. When he gets to Puteoli, he finds there's a group of Christians there. 
and they say, they get them to come and stay with them and they entertain them for seven days. When you are alone, there is nothing better than to meet up with those who have also accepted Jesus as Lord and whose lives will encourage you, pray with you, they'll support you, they'll embolden you. Absolutely nothing better than that. I've worked on um, overseas contracts for many years in many different places. Um, I once did a count up and found that I'd worked in 50 different countries. And um, I counted work where somebody paid me to go. <laughs> if I paid for myself, that was a holiday. <laughs> um, and sometimes it was for very short times. I was just going out to prepare a tender or something. <clears throat> but I went to Cairo once where I had to be for three months. And I needed to be with the, the children. And I worshipped in the Anglican Cathedral. And one of the things was that in Egypt, we as workers only got Friday off. But most of the churches in Cairo, they met on Sundays, which we were, were all working at, so we couldn't go. But the cathedral had a Sunday evening service. And so I went to that, and the cathedral also had a Bible study group. And I met some really fantastic Christians in that group, people who've, who've gone on to be heads of missionary societies and things like that. It was, it was a, a, a tremendous time working there. Um, they had two excellent evangelistic uh, ministers. One was an Australian and the other was an Englishman. And um, the Englishman came back to England and wrote quite a few books on Islam and so actually became... In, in, if you read a lot, quite, quite well known. But they were fantastic. Um, you know, I don't normally think of going to a cathedral and worshipping as being the place for me, but it actually was very, very good. And a few years later, one of my colleague's wife went to the cathedral in Cairo and was converted. <laughs> and I met her in Lebanon. But, uh, so it, it was a very thriving, reaching out thing. When I went to Lesotho, which is a country entirely surrounded by South Africa, I joined the International Church, as they called it, which had a pastor and they had a home group that comprised lots of Mennonite missionaries. I, I didn't even know about the Mennonite Church, but, um, and, and I was very ignorant, but, um, but they were great. They mostly came from America, and our, our home groups, you like this, um, always started with dinner first right? So you got there for six o'clock and you had dinner between six and eight and then you had uh, the home group from eight till ten and um, it really, I mean, I know that many people had um, living people who could help them with their children, so, but in those I think I was only in the Sutu for six weeks, at the end of that six weeks having, uh, they, they were sort of potluck dinners, you know, everyone brought something and you just ate I knew those people far, far better than my house group back in England. Um, there's just something about eating with people that, that gets you to know them. I was sent to work in Kuwait. And on my first day in the office, I went in and we, Kuwait, we had quite a big office and there was an office manager and I went in to say, see him and I said, can you tell me if there are any churches in Kuwait? And um, the office manager said, yes, the Kuwaitis have, um, have got a, a church in the center of the city, 
And not a church, it's a building for churches, and churches can hire it out. So if you go along in this, you'll find different churches meet at different times in this building. And I thanked him for that, and I went back to sit at my desk. And about 20 minutes later, an Indian accountant who was working in the same office as the head administrator came round to see me, and he said, Mr. Farrell, I've been working here for years, and I've longed for someone to come and ask that question. <laughs> and then, then he said to me, will you come and speak at my church? First day. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought he meant would I come and sort of introduce myself for 10 minutes. And so I just so I said, oh, yes, I'll come. And, and then about um, a week or 10 days later, he came to me and said, let's fix the time you can come to my church. And I said, how long do you want me to pray for? Uh, not pray, to speak for. He said, oh, at least an hour. I thought, I'm not in for that. <laughs> but, um, and I nearly made the most incredible mistake. I went to this church, which was all Indian, um, and I saw a speed seat there, and I, I was going to go and sit down on it. And suddenly I had the Lord saying to me, don't sit down. So I stood up there, and I then looked, and all the women were on one side, and all the men were on another side. I was about to sit amongst all the women. <laughs> Mongolia. Mongolia is, was a country. Um, I have to tell you this. It was reputed that in one of the guidebooks, they said, <clears throat> Mongolia is an unusual country. The restaurants close at lunchtime. And um, Anne and I, we looked through the guidebook and we tried to find a church that we go to. There was absolutely nothing in the guidebook about churches or Christians meeting or anything. But we did find something that said some Christians meet at this particular building. So on the first Sunday morning, we went down. <coughs> we were in the capital city, Ulaanbaatar. We went down and we went and this building was a, um, a multi-story block of flats. And we went up to this flat and found there was a big um, lock on the outside of the door. And we thought, well, there's no church meeting here today. And so we then knocked on the other doors to ask them if they knew, but they just looked at us. Uh, they couldn't speak English, and we couldn't speak Mongolian. And so Anne suggested a thing to me. She said, let's go down and walk by the river, and we can pray together. And uh, we were walking by the river when three or four boys between, I would think, 10 and 12, very excitedly came running down past us. And we looked at their T-shirts, and their T-shirts said, in English, Jesus loves me. And so Anne and I said, why don't we follow them and see where they're going? Maybe they'll lead us to a church. So um, <laughs> we turned around and started following these. And after about half a mile, they went into a sort of commercial area of the town where there were buildings. And they went in a door, and then they went up the stairs. <clears throat> so we decided we'd follow them up the stairs, see what was happening. And it was a church. It was a church led by Koreans. And um, they were Koreans who, um, and they were aiming to get Mongolians in. So the services were in Korean and were translated into Mongolian, neither of which language we spoke. <laughs> But as we sat there, two Swedish ladies who were at the front came and sat next to us. <clears throat> and they'd been working in Mongolia. They were missionaries. They'd been working in Mongolia for two to three years, I think. And they, um, and they spoke Mongolian, but they also spoke English very well. And so then everything was translated 
from um, <laughs> Korean to Mongolian to English. And we became very great friends with these Swedish ladies. And um, actually, we loved the church. It, it, was, it was a very unusual um, church for us. And um, when the, de the women danced for the, to the worship, they looked like ballerinas. And I was saying to Anna, I think this is great the way they do it. She said, that's just their culture. Uh, but they, they did have this tremendously beautiful movement in all, all their dancing. And there was an international church that, that we used to go to in the evening, but that was something that was, I, I felt it was, it, it was a great place if you just wanted to go and worship and, have, and, and, and pray. It didn't seem to me to have the feel of a church. We went to it most Sunday evenings, but really we thought this Korean church was our church. And our being there at this Korean church caused a couple to get married. But that's a longer story I won't tell you now. The Lord knew that Paul needed encouragement. And so when he went to Peter, he provided fellow Christians. We need the fellowship of our brothers and sisters to keep us from sliding into sin and to envision us and to keep us going on in the race. This um, student friend of mine who um, wanted to make sure that I didn't backslide after I'd become a Christian, he, he, he'd done military service before he went to university, same as I had. But he'd been sent out to Malaya. And um, he'd become a Christian at a, a boys' camp, I think, when he was 11 or 12. And he'd been a committed Christian for many years. But when he went out to Malaya, um, on a Sunday morning, he would go to the Methodist church in the town. And um, he was telling me that one day he was feeling tired and it was two bus journeys to get to the church. So he just decided not to go and he was lying on his bunk. And he said, one of the other airmen came up to him and said, I can't get over you Christians. If the route to your church was filled with ecrement, well, he didn't use that word, he used a shorter but similar meaning word. And it had broken glass all the way and you had to crawl, you'd go to your church. But look at you. Just because you're feeling a bit tired and you've got two buses to catch, you sit there lying on your bed. Now this chap wasn't a Christian, it was just him gone. My friend said he never missed church for the rest of his time in Malaya. You sometimes need the, the encouragement. Uh, where is it? Somebody in, says somebody encourages the Christians and it's almost as though they've, they've got a... Oh, yes. It's, it's, sorry, it's the tapestry of, uh, of William encouraging um, his soldiers in the Battle of Hastings. And he's got a, a spear that he's poking him in the back. <laughs> but it says he's encouraging them. <laughs> After Putoli, we have the land route towards Rome on the Appian Way. But they have to pass through the Pontine Marshes, maybe on a barge or maybe walking through very muddy conditions. And they had to go to the Market of Appius and the Three Taverns. Now, one of the most famous Roman poets was a, a, an author called Horace. He wrote odes, right? And a hundred years before Paul, he had to make the reverse journey. He had to go from Rome 
down to the south of Italy. Horace had been a soldier, and um, uh, perhaps I ought to explain it. When Julius Caesar was assassinated, you had two groups of people, one of Octavius and Mark Antony on one side, and Cassius, Brutus, and the gang on the other side, and they went into war against each other, and uh, Octavius and Mark Antony um, won. And so they became the top people. And then Octavius and Mark Antony had a war, and it was at the Battle of Philippi in AD, not AD, um, BC 42. And uh, Octavius defeated Mark Antony, and Mark Antony fled down to the south of Italy. And in BC, I think it was 38, Horace, who'd fought for Octavius in the war and was obviously a friend of Octavius, was given a commission to go down and see if he could do something to help Mark Antony down in the south of Italy because uh, Octavius had now become the emperor and he be changed his name and he became Caesar Augustus. And Horace has to go through exactly the same places where Paul's gone, right? This forum um, of Appius and the three taverns or the three inns. And he writes a poem about his, his, his time spent in the Forum of Appius. He says, the Forum of Appius was a town full of sailors and surly innkeepers. The water he had to drink there was terrible and it made him sick. He could not sleep all night because of the quantity of mosquitoes, biting mosquitoes that were there all the time and the croaking of frogs throughout the night made a noise. This was his description of the... Uh, now, you might... I'm, I have to say, I was surprised. Luke doesn't even mention this trip across the Pontine Marshes. And, and I, I was thinking, why on earth doesn't Luke mention it? And then I thought, well, it's probably because the Pontine Marshes were no longer there when... Um, this is nearly 100 years later when Luke and Paul and... Um, Aristarchus are going through. But I was totally wrong. The Pontine marshes weren't drained until Mussolini became dictator of Egypt in the 1930s and drained the Pontine marshes. And in the, before they were drained, the Italian Red Cross said that if you went and spent a night in that area, you were 80% likely to get um, infected with the malaria parasite. So, of course, Paul and his team, they, they didn't know. Um, well, they only found out that malaria, malaria was the method by which malaria... Sorry. Mosquitoes were the, the vector that caused malaria in 1897. And the, the doctor who, who did it, um, Roland Ross, got the Nobel Prize in 1902 for this. <coughs> but <laughs> these mosquitoes at the time of Paul would have been malarial mosquitoes. And yet Luke doesn't mention it all. And that, that puzzled me. Um, and I just wondered whether they had been through so much that um, a little <laughs> few or a few bites of mosquitoes seemed insignificant. I don't know. I, I don't know why um, Horace could make such a fuss about it, 
And Luke doesn't even mention it. Yeah, we, we, did, we just went on to Rome. And we, um, of course, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh. And he said it's a messenger of Satan. He never defines this, so no one really knows what this um, messenger from Satan or this thorn in the flesh was. That doesn't stop people speculating as it was. Loads of people come up with their theories. But some theories are that in the lower levels of Turkey, Paul got malaria, and, uh, and then when he went up into the hills, it was better, and that it was the sort of malaria that comes and goes. You know, you, you have it, and then you, you, you don't have it, and this sort of thing. I'm not saying, please, I'm not saying that this was Paul's thorn in the flesh. But if he'd had malaria from previous and was going through a malarial area, he would have probably known that this is what you get when you're in this sort of area, and no great fuss about it. I don't know. Um, see how the Lord seeks to encourage Paul yet again. Christians, hearing that he's coming, set out to meet him. And the three taverns, or the three inns, is about 33 miles from Rome, and a further 10 miles on is this um, market of Appius, or forum of Appius. How this must have cheered Paul up. Christians who'd never seen him, never heard him speak, but who may have led his letter to the Romans, I don't know. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. I, it's the took courage that I, that I get hold of. You tend to think Paul doesn't need courage, but he does. He's facing quite insurmountable odds going into this. And he needs courage. And the people who will give you courage when you're in a difficult position are your fellow brothers and sisters who will get with you and they will pray with you. They may not be facing the same thing as you are, but they can share with you in it and they can strengthen you and encourage you and give you the, the power to keep on going. So, not only did in Putoli but also in the forum of market of Appius, or the forum of Appius it's called, and the three taverns, village or town, Christians are meeting him and gathering him round him and encouraging him. And I think that that's a lovely, um, um, I suppose it's the Lord who's organizing this, isn't it? He sees what Paul needs and he gives him what he needs. He's not necessarily giving him an easy time, the time is, is going to be hard and tough, but he sees what Paul needs. As soon as he gets there, he calls the Jews to himself. Um, after three days, his first action is to call the leading members of the Jewish community. Somebody commented that Paul's mission had always been to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And here it is, goes to the Jews even though almost always most of the Jews had rejected him. Not all, but many of the Jews had rejected him. And Paul tells them all the story of why he wasn't here. He maintains his innocence, and he's done nothing against the Jewish people. He's done nothing against the customs of the fathers, yet he was delivered into the hands of the Romans. The Romans considered he was innocent, but because the Jews objected, 
he'd appealed to Caesar and he was on his way there. And the Roman Jews, they say, we've not received any letters about you, nor had any Jewish visitors reporting badly about you. We want to hear your views, except that we do know this sect, or the Christians, are badly spoken about everywhere. <coughs> Paul knew what he was going into. Mind you, the Jews in this situation would need to be very circumspect. Not long ago, the Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews out of Rome. And if you read, it is in Corinthians, where Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla, both Jews who, under Claudius's edict, have been expelled out of Rome. The Jews must have, some of the Jews must have come back to Rome, that they were still a leading Jewish community. And people never quite know, I mean, of course, when Nero did it later, that's different, but never quite know why the Jews were expelled. Some people, there are sort of indications that it was a dispute between the Christians and the Jews, but I don't know. It's not clear enough to know. But the Jews would have been very sensitive that they had been thrown out of Rome not very long ago, like five or six years ago, and the fact that here was Paul, who was not only a Jew, but also a Roman citizen, who had a, you know, a right to be in Rome. So they would have had to be on their guard for how they dealt with him. Now, this is one of these passages that's like um, um, a, a play on TV, you know? The episode finishes here, but you've got to come next week to get the second part of the episode. <laughs> so... I'm sorry, that's probably all I've got to say on this passage. We're here now, Paul's got to Rome. The Jews are, if not hostile, at least very guarded about him. And um, he's facing what is yet to come imminently. Thank you, Debbie. <laughs> Let your